More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Welcome to Survivor Sanctuary. I'm Kelly Downing, and we're kicking off episode 15 here on the podcast. Well, I am thankful to be warm today. Uh, Thanksgiving is coming up, and that is the thing I think I'm most thankful for right now, that I am not freezing cold. Last week, I left sunny South Florida. I live just south of Miami. And I headed to Ohio with some family and to visit family that lives there. And it was really fun seeing family. It was really fun getting to catch up with everybody. I'm going to tell you it was not fun. It was not fun at all to be freezing cold for seven days straight. And it was freezing. The day that we arrived in Ohio was like a record low temperature for November, like the lowest temperature on record for that date. It was like 10 degrees and it had been snowing. Uh, part of the time we were driving, snow's falling all over us. And yeah, I got out of the car at one point, I think I was in Tennessee, got out of the car, felt the biting cold and realized I had made a grave error. Like, what am I doing here? Why did I decide it would be a good idea to drive north in the middle of like the coldest November on record? But we did it and it took a lot of layers of clothing. I wore several pairs of socks like the entire time I was there. Didn't even want to shower without those socks on. I was so cold. Uh, but I made it through and things did warm up for us. And I'm putting warm up in air quotes because, yeah, it warmed up to like a balmy 30 degrees. So I was freezing the whole time. Then I get back to South Florida and there's a nip in the air here as well. Temperatures had been in the 50s and 60s, which if you live in South Florida like I do, you know that when the temperature drops below 70 degrees, you are officially cold. I actually get cold if it drops below 75, but in the 50s and 60s, forget it. That is winter to us teeth chattering, boots out, sweaters on. That's just the way that it goes. But in any case, I'm warm now and I'm very thankful with Thanksgiving coming up. That's definitely something I'm going to be thanking the Lord for that. I live here in South Florida where it is never 10 degrees. Now, it wasn't all fun and games while I was in Ohio visiting family. There was actually something very tragic that occurred, and that's going to make it really difficult for me to enjoy my Thanksgiving meal. My two little nephews, Henry and Theo, they are four and a half and almost two years old. They wanted to visit a farm. They wanted to see cows. And so we took them to this little farm and braved the mud and all kinds of stuff that looks like mud, but doesn't smell like it, if you know what I mean. Well, we braved it and got to see some calves and some chickens and unfortunately a whole gaggle of turkeys. And they were actually kind of cute. I had heard that turkeys are just giant jerks. Like they have to be chased out of neighborhoods by animal services and relocated to the wild because they harass people. Well, these turkeys did not harass. They just followed us around. And if you would talk to them, they would talk back. I guess they would gobble back. And I just realized as I stared into their faces and the farmer 
uh, told us that every single one of those turkeys was going to be offed for Thanksgiving. I realized it was going to be hard for me to eat Tom turkey this season. Hard, but I'm going to power through. Going to power through, definitely going to be basting that bird up and shoving it in the oven anyway, but I don't know. It made me a little bit sad. They're pretty birds, and they were actually pretty friendly if they weren't so delicious. That would make things easier. It really, really would. Then I could have like tofurkey for Thanksgiving instead. Well, we are going to dive right into today's episode. And you may have noticed the title, So the Child Molester Says He's Sorry. Depending on who you were abused by, if you are an abuse survivor, or the area where you were abused, whether it was someone in your home or maybe someone in your church, your experience may be a little different. We all have different experiences, but one thing in chatting to a lot of survivors that I have heard as a very common theme is child molesters being caught. Because once you get to the point where you're speaking out about sexual abuse, where you are owning the truth that happened to you. You're owning everything about your past and you're living the truth and you're not hiding anymore. We tend to have told on our perpetrators at that point. And so a couple of things happen. One, perpetrators deny that they ever abused and they just, it's denial. It's your word against theirs. And that's something that can happen. And the other one is they're caught and They have to make a choice when they're caught of whether they are going to be defiant or be repentant. Now, you might think it's a little bit difficult to be defiant when you have committed such a horrible crime as the sexual abuse of a child, but I'm sure it happens. I will say, though, that it's far more common in my experience in talking to other survivors that the person who perpetrated the sexual abuse will say they're very, very sorry for what they've done. I've actually had an opportunity to experience both of those things from the man who sexually abused me when I was a small child, both the denial and the repentance. And I'm putting repentance in air quotes. And you may think that makes me sound a little bit bitter, but I promise it's not bitterness. And we will get to why I have air quotes around repentance uh, through the course of this episode. But the reason that I got to experience both of these reactions or responses to being caught uh, sexually abusing a child or to be told on after many, many years is because the first reaction of the man who abused me was to completely deny that he had ever done it. So church leaders believed what I said when I wrote to them and told them what had happened to me as a child and that their head deacon was someone who had abused children and that I was in fear that he was still abusing based on his pattern of the past. They believed me and they confronted him. And he vehemently denied that he had ever touched me, Uh, had no idea what they were talking about. And he left that first meeting and I think a subsequent meeting or two completely denying that he had ever abused me. After he'd had a little time to think about it, though, he eventually confessed. Yes, it's true. Yes, I've had this problem. He admitted to, I feel like, just enough details to make it seem like he was being honest. And he broke down and cried. And when the church leaders told me about what had transpired as far as them questioning him and him confessing, they were really careful to tell me that he had cried. 
they said it in such a way that let me know that they thought that was a really, really important detail. Like, okay, finally he admitted that he did this and he cried. And it was almost as though they were saying, obviously, he's truly repentant. He's truly sorry because he cried when he finally confessed to us. What these church leaders didn't know is that I had been doing a lot of studying and reading about how sexual offenders and especially how child molesters react when they're caught. And I knew that the number one response is to break down and cry. Can I say definitively that the man who abused me was putting on a show of repentance? No, I can't say that because I can't see into his brain. I'm not God. Uh, But are there ways that we can decipher whether or not a person who has harmed children is truly repentant? And I believe that we can. And one of the reasons I think it's so important to talk about this is that churches seem to be getting this wrong. And I don't even want to say seem to be. Churches are getting this wrong over and over and over again. We're talking to people on this podcast every couple of weeks who share stories about how their abusers are back in the pulpit or back teaching school or back you know, doing whatever they want in ministry and working with children despite the fact that they are admitted child abusers. And something you'll hear me talk about pretty often is how survivors are shamed for not immediately just forgiving their abuser and embracing them and crying with them and agreeing that their repentance is so magical. And I feel like that's what a lot of church leaders and other fellow Christians want survivors to do. They want us to just be moved emotionally by the perpetrator and his or her sincere repentance as they see it. But a lot of us can't do that. And I know that some of that has to do with the amount of brokenness we've experienced at a person's hands. It has to do with knowing a side of them that everybody else doesn't know or never got to see unless they too were abused by this person. I'm not going to say that any person who has sexually harmed a child can never be repentant because I know that people can be sorry and ashamed and truly repentant for many types of sin. So I'm not going to say that a person who abuses a child can never truly be sorry. What I can say, though, is the church and Christians in general are far too quick to accept that a person who has sexually abused a child is truly repentant. So I want to break down a little bit of what happened in my story after my perpetrator was caught. And he was caught uh, because I turned him in. And as far as the church leaders knew, no one had ever accused him of this in the past. Now, I wasn't there, so there are probably a lot of things that transpired that I don't know about. But here's what I do know. A few weeks after they had confronted him, after he vehemently denied that he had ever abused me, it took several meetings. They told me they basically had to grill him for quite a bit to get him to confess. And when he finally admitted that he had done it, they gave him a list of conditions for his repentance. And one day I got an email from one of the leaders of the mission board and he sent me a letter. It was uh, written out handwriting in Indonesian and signed by my perpetrator. And they had also sent 
a translated copy of this letter, which was typed out. I honestly did not want a letter. I I hadn't wanted to hear anything from him. I really just wanted to say what had happened so that anybody else who had been abused by him would have a chance to come forward and so that anyone in the future who is going to be near him or in that church would be protected from sexual abuse. Those were the reasons that I came forward. So I recoiled a little bit that he had sent me a letter because I honestly didn't feel like I was mentally or emotionally prepared to be contacted by him. But I read the letter and they told me, listen, it's up to you. If you want to respond or not, that's totally up to you. Now, I didn't end up sending a response to this letter and I'll outline for you why. Because when I read this letter, I realized pretty quickly that there was a lot in there that was an attempt to minimize what he had done, to minimize the abuse and to minimize what he had done to me and other children who now had to live out the remainder of our lives dealing with the consequences of what he did to us. So the letter started, Dear Kelly, did I really do that all those years ago? And I immediately just had like the hair on the back of my neck standing up, you know, and my intuition just basically kicked in and said, all right, so I'm already seeing something wrong with this letter. First of all, he acts like he doesn't remember what he did. That is definitely an attempt to minimize the fact that he abused me. Because if he doesn't even remember the abuse, he can separate that person back then from the person that he is now and kind of not even take responsibility for it because he can't even remember it happening. The second thing that really hit me wrong was the fact that he said, did I really do that to you? all those years ago. So second thing that really bugged me was another attempt to minimize what he had done because he's reminding me it was so long ago, so long ago, I can barely even remember it. And it's another attempt to minimize the fact that he had sexually abused me and that he had sexually abused other girls. Now, I don't know if he knew that they told me that there were other victims. I'm not sure if they ever told him that. But in his letter, he was trying to make it sound like he didn't remember abusing me, and it was a super, super, super long time ago. And he actually did say, well, I guess you wouldn't forget something like that, so if you say it happened, I mean, it was basically like, all right, I'll take your word for it, which if you had never molested children is probably not the reaction that you're going to have when you are speaking to the person who has accused you. So that was the first part of the letter. The, The second part, I don't even really remember very much of what else he said because I was too struck by the fact that over half the letter was attempting to minimize the fact that he had abused me. But I do remember him saying, I just want to serve God for the remainder of my life. I just, you know, I'm so repentant and all I want to do is serve God and that's it. And I honestly tried to keep an open mind. I honestly tried to keep a soft heart and think, you know what? It was a long time ago. There's a chance that maybe he's not doing this stuff anymore. There's a chance he is repentant. But then when I read his letter... It just didn't sit right with me. And when I had other people who were kind of experts in the field of sexual abuse in the church, I had them read it. I kind of got the same reaction from them. This guy's not repentant at all. He's trying to make it sound like he doesn't remember what he did. It was so long ago. Basically, this isn't that big of a deal. 
And for the person who had done the worst thing that's ever been done to me to try and act like it wasn't a big deal was kind of like a slap in the face. It just was a slap in the face to the person who'd been living out the consequences of what he did. So my whole life has been one giant reaction to this sexual abuse. I have been struggling for decades in life because of what you did to me. And you're telling me that you don't even remember doing it because it was just so long ago and basically trying to make it seem like an insignificant life event. And for me, it was probably the most significant thing that had happened to me as far as forming the person that I had become. So I share this story about the letter that I received from my perpetrator, and I shared the story about the church leaders being very moved by his tears, because I think that they offer us some insight into what it looks like when someone is truly repentant. And honestly, I think it might be easier to outline the ways that we can tell if someone is not truly repentant. Because to be honest with you, I have yet to hear a story about someone who sexually abused children, who confessed without being caught, who repented in dust and ashes, and has lived out the remainder of his or her days bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. So survivors get a lot of flack for not believing perpetrators who are repentant or not accepting their apologies and welcoming them back into church with open arms. We get a lot of criticism for that. And you'll see this happen in churches over and over again in interviews we've already done. You've heard about it. And there will be so many more because honestly, almost every story that I hear from a survivor of sexual abuse who is a part of a church kind of has the same theme. The perpetrator says he's sorry and he's forgiven by the church. And then the victim is ostracized for not accepting that apology and forgiving and forgetting. So I have a few reasons why survivors may be resistant to the idea that the person who abused them is repentant. And I'm not saying, oh, this person is emotionally damaged or they've been hurt by this person, so that's why they don't want to believe it. I'm actually talking about behaviors of the perpetrators themselves because the current lie detector test that we're using is not working. People who sexually abuse children tend to be master manipulators. They're very good at lying because they've had to spend decades of their lives lying. And I'm talking about the man who abused me. It had been 30 years since he abused me when I came forward or nearly 30 years. And I wasn't his only victim, so there was a span of about probably five or six years that he admitted to where he had a few victims here and there, and in order to get these kids alone, in order to abuse them, he had to be very manipulative, he had to be sneaky, he had to lie, and he had to deceive. This is something I wish I could hammer into the brains of people who are like, oh, this person, they're so sorry, they cried, and they're so repentant. And I just want to shake them sometimes and say, okay, the lies they had to tell and the deception that they had to live in order to successfully abuse children for all those years or all those months or however long it was, makes them a master at lying, a master at manipulating emotions. It's what people do in order to gain access to children in the first place. They manipulate parents, they manipulate church leaders, they manipulate other people in the congregation. People who prey on children 
are masters at deception. So we can't use tears as our lie detector test. You just can't do it. There has to be something more substantial. There has to be something deeper than that. And the reason it's important is because the innocence and the safety of other children is at stake. And when you're talking about the safety and the innocence of children, you need something more than this perpetrator has cried. So there are a couple of things that I think can help us determine if someone's repentance is genuine. Now, not every single thing is completely foolproof. I don't have like a 10-step list that if you follow it, you'll know everything exactly and you'll be able to see into the minds of a predator or someone who claims to be repentant. If we had something like that, the world would be a much safer place. But we kind of have to go on intuition and we kind of have to go on common sense. So here's a really good test. If you are wondering if someone is truly repentant for what they've done, did this person confess to molesting children or confess to sexually assaulting whoever they assaulted, or did they have to be turned in by an abuse victim? Did they confess or did they get caught? Now, just so nobody writes me an angry letter, I'm not saying that if someone is caught before they've confessed to the crime themselves, that they're not truly repentant. I'm sure that it's possible that someone can be caught and be sorry after the fact. But I think it's something we need to look at very, very closely when you think about the ways that sexual predators deceive us and manipulate us. I think about the man who abused me. He went for 30 plus years Abusing children, at least in the time period he admits to, I believe that he has abused people for years. I don't think that he ever stopped. And honestly, I don't think that he ever will because he still has access to children who are very, very vulnerable. But for all those years, he had every opportunity to find my phone number, to find my address, to send me a letter, to say he was sorry, to confess his sin to church leaders, uh, to confess his sin to his family members, to say, hey, I don't think I should be the lead deacon of this church because I have some serious sin in my past that I've never worked out. We didn't get any of that from him. And you usually don't get that from abusers of children. They normally do what this guy did and try to minimize. So number one, Can you trust the repentance of a person who only repented once they were caught? Because honestly, the reality is you have to believe this person would have continued to do what they were doing because that's what they've always done. Lied, manipulated, hid the truth, hid under cover of darkness, and did things that were completely wicked deceiving so many people in order to do it. I think it's important for us to remember, we kind of act like, you know, we'll say somebody fell into sin. And a pastor once said, like, you don't fall into sin. It's not like you trip over your shoelaces and oops, you know, I'm in bed with my secretary. Like, that's not how it works. And especially when it comes to the sexual abuse of a child. Because I will say this, there are moments in our lives when we become caught up in an emotion, whether it be passion or anger or fury, there are times in your life when you can be overcome by emotions. And perhaps you do something that's terrible in one of those moments. But I'll say this, the sexual abuse of a child is not one of those things. You don't just slip and sexualize a small child. You don't just slip 
and deceive that child, that child's family, that child's church family, your family, everybody around you, like the level of deception that it takes to successfully sexually abuse a child is mind blowing. It just is. So we know that abusers are master manipulators. They had to be in order to get away with the crimes that they've been committing for however long they've been committing them. It is necessary for somebody who wants to be a child molester to lie and to lie often. It is necessary for someone who is abusing children in that way to deceive other people. They have to be very secretive, very manipulative. So you're dealing with a person that is a master at manipulating and lying and deceiving and fooling people into thinking that they're wonderful. And you're taking that knowledge you have about this person and then saying, well, if they're crying, it's a surefire sign that they are repentant. That just doesn't make sense to me. But abusers know how to appeal to our emotions. And if you read about people who abuse, and I would highly recommend Dr. Anna Salter's book on Predators. It has a really long title, and I can never remember all the crazy people she's talking about. So I just call it her book on predators, but Dr. Anna Salter. It's a really good book that gives you insight into the mind, the psyche of someone who sexually abuses children. You cannot use tears as your foolproof lie detector test. You just can't. I would venture to say that tears are completely meaningless when it comes to determining whether an abuser's repentance is genuine. One of the things that really struck me the wrong way in my story when the church had confronted my abuser was the fact that they had conditions for repentance. They gave him a list of conditions. If you do this, 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 and this, it means that you are repentant. And it bothered me so much. He had to write me a letter He had to stand before the church and say he had sinned against the Lord and he had to resign from being a deacon. And I was bugged by that because no one should have to impose any rules or any conditions on a truly repentant person. If someone is really broken by what they've done, if they're disgusted by their crime and their sin, they will impose those conditions and those rules on themselves. You're not going to have to give them a list, do this, this, and this, because they are going to be way, way ahead of you in trying to make amends. Repentant people don't need to be told how to act repentant. They just don't. So you've got an abuser who had to be caught in order to stop abusing and who had to be told what to do in order to be repentant. Neither one of those things sat very well with me, and they continue to not sit very well when I hear stories from other survivors of sexual abuse when they're talking about those who have abused them or how their church leaders have responded when they don't want their perpetrator to be at church with them or they may not believe that their perpetrator is actually repentant. But this is a category of people, a category of men and women that will do anything and do so many things in order to not have the full weight of what they've done brought out into the light. I believe that many child molesters and sexual abusers repent because they were caught. What else are you going to do when you're caught? Somebody turns you in and says, this person sexually abused me when I was a child for X number of years, did all this terrible stuff. What choice do you have? You can either 
deny that you did it, or you can act really, really sorry for doing it. I guess there's a third option and you could just be very defiant and act like you don't care that it was bad, but that doesn't tend to be the response of people who are caught abusing children. You usually have a lot of tears and a lot of manipulating of emotions. I just think that it says a lot about someone that they would groom children, that they would groom families, that they would groom churches. They work so hard to gain the trust of everybody and to look wonderful in their eyes. And then they never willingly confess to what they do. Instead, they enjoy all those years of having a great reputation, having great standing in the church, having a loving family or loving friends, and never attempting to make things right with victims until someone says, hey, you need to write a letter of apology as a condition of your repentance. So I have another tell, if you will, in determining whether or not a child molester is truly repentant. And that is, does this person insist on continuing in church ministry? I just think it's a general rule of thumb. If a child molester is truly repentant, they're not going to seek to serve in ministry. The man who abused me resigned from his position as deacon. But just weeks after he resigned, there were pictures of him floating around on Facebook behind the pulpit once again. He was reading scripture. He was leading a song. And I can't tell you what a slap in the face it is to somebody who went through the agony of having to come forward, share intimate details of the worst thing that's ever happened to them in order to try and protect other children. It honestly is. It's like somebody just kicks you in the gut. We know that this happened to you. We know that this person did this to you. We know that he did it to other people too. But he said he was sorry, so he's back behind the pulpit. And I just think that it's a big tell. If you have abused your position of power and abused the bodies of tiny little children for your own sexual pleasure, you don't belong behind a pulpit ever again. And if this abuser insists on leading in church, insists on being in the spotlight, insists on leading some ministry... I think it's a pretty good sign that that person is not repentant. Someone who's truly broken by their sin is going to understand that apologizing or crying is not a repentance plea bargain. You don't trade your admission of guilt for reduced consequences. That's just not how it works. A truly repentant person admits the full extent of their sin and accepts all consequences, even imposes some of those consequences on themselves. And to me, that is one of the biggest fruits of repentance in someone's life. I think that a lot of us can be easily manipulated by abusers because we project our own thoughts and feelings and worldviews onto perpetrators of sexual abuse because we're personally horrified at the thought of anyone sexualizing a child. Then we assume that the offender must feel the same way. So we project our own conscience and our own moral compass onto a person who honestly is only repenting, repenting in air quotes, after he was finally caught. So the child molester says he's sorry. So the child molester has sat and shed tears. Neither one of those things can tell you the truth about what's actually happening. I want to read you a couple of quotes from Dr. Anna Salter, and I actually have the title of the book here, so I will read the whole thing. It's Predators, 
pedophiles, rapists, and other sex offenders. So the whole book is about predators, and I just want to read you some of her quotes so that you can kind of understand a little bit more uh, someone who has literally studied the minds of abusers. So this is a direct quote from Anna Salter. Despite the psychopath's lack of conscience and lack of empathy for others, he is inevitably better at fooling people than any other type of offender. A convicted child molester made friends with a correctional officer who invited him to live in his home after he was released, despite the fact that the officer had a nine-year-old daughter. The officer and his wife were so taken with the offender that after the offender lived with them for a few months, they initiated adoption proceedings. Adoption for a man almost their age. Of course, he was a child molester living in the same house as a child. Not surprisingly, He molested the daughter the entire time he lived there. What these experiences have taught me is that even when people are warned of a previously founded case or even a conviction, they still routinely underestimate the pathology with which they are dealing. I think it's safe to say that churches are doing that, routinely underestimating the pathology with which they are dealing when they're confronted with those who would sexually abuse children. And you might be able to scoff at that example. Uh, It sounds pretty extreme. Like who would do something like that? Like we would never be so blind as this correctional officer and his wife. But honestly, is their story really all that different from a church that allows a confessed child molester to continue participating in ministry? Just because he's well-liked and he shed a few tears when he was finally caught and turned in by someone? It really doesn't sound that different to me. I've got another quote from Dr. Anna Salter. It is from an article that she wrote on ethics and behavior. It says, sexual and physical offenders who profess to be remorseful after they are caught are automatically assumed to be sincere. After all, the therapist would feel terrible if he or she did such a thing. It makes perfect sense that the offender would regret abusing a child. People routinely listen to their own moral sense and assume that others share it. That is from Dr. Salter's Confessions of a Whistleblower, Lessons Learned. And one last quote from Dr. Salter from her Predators book says, in all the interviews I've done, I cannot remember one offender who did not admit privately to more victims than those for whom he'd been caught. On the contrary, most offenders have been charged with and or convicted of from one to three victims. In the interviews I have done, they have admitted to roughly 10 to 1,250 victims. What was truly frightening was that all the offenders had been reported before by children and the reports had been ignored. You know, there are a lot of things that we can argue about or bicker about in churches. We can fight over the color the carpet should be. We can fight over the type of music that the worship team is going to play and sing. We can fight over what gender of people should be speaking in church and what gender shouldn't. We can fight about so many things. But when it comes to something that has the potential to destroy the lives of children, it's not something that we can sit and have petty disagreements over. There are literally lives at stake when you're dealing with someone who has sexually abused children. And if you're dealing with such an offender, either who served prison time in the past for molesting or who was credibly accused but maybe only had to serve probation, never even served any jail time, When you're dealing with a person who has been credibly accused or has confessed to sexually abusing children, you gotta have something more than he cried and said he was sorry. 
One of the things that broke my heart the most in coming forward about the guy who sexually abused me as a child was that nothing really changed. It wasn't my intent that his life be destroyed or that he go to prison forever to rot in a jail cell. My purpose in coming forward was because I knew if I didn't, that children would be in danger. And the church has not taken that seriously. No matter how many times I told them, I spoke up because I'm scared that this is going to happen to other girls that he has access to. And within months, he's leading puppet shows. He's working in kids ministry. He's surrounded by little girls the age that I was when he sexually abused me. And the church is just standing there like an ostrich with its head buried in the sand, hoping that when he says he's sorry and sheds some tears, he really means it. That's really all that we have when a child molester is caught, but for whatever reason can't be legally held accountable for his actions. All we have is that hope. The hope that they're not continuing to deceive us, the hope that their tears are a result of genuine repentance rather than regret over being caught, the hope that they've divulged the entire truth about the number of victims they've assaulted, and the hope that when they say they'll never molest another little boy or girl ever again, they truly mean it. We have hope. What we don't have is proof. We don't have proof that the molester is actually repentant and not just doing damage control now that a victim has finally come forward. We don't have proof that the molester has changed his ways. And this hope is really flimsy because it's based on our desire for reality to be something that we can easily digest and that makes us feel warm and fuzzy. This hope is problematic because it forces us to take the word of a man or a woman who spent decades lying, manipulating, deceiving, and living this sordid double life. And it is a dangerous hope because it does absolutely nothing to ensure the safety of vulnerable little children. And that's got to change. Once we know that somebody has violated a child in such a horrific way, and we don't do anything to ensure the safety of other children, every single child that is harmed from that point on is on our hands. So that is episode 15. It's what I have for you today. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on anything I've been chatting about in this podcast or in any of the other episodes. You can join us on Survivor Sanctuary. It is a closed Facebook group. It is private. We like to keep everybody safe and private so they can share as they wish. But you can search Survivor Sanctuary on Facebook request to join and I will approve you there. And I'm looking forward to talking to you. I will catch you back here next week for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then. Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.